0: Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. It's a privilege to speak to you tonight and to open up God's Word and continue part 8 in the Gospel of John. We're, we're slowly making our way there. Um, I wasn't able to be in, in here this morning um, while Pastor Brent was going through Mark, but boy, the theme of the authority of Jesus is going to tie in so well to what we're looking at tonight in John chapter 5. Before, I, before we start, I want to remind you of John's purpose in writing his gospel. He gives us the purpose in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we look at the third sign tonight in the Gospel of John, I think we need to keep it in that context of why John wrote this for us. John chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 gives us the setting for this sign. So let's start in verse 1. After this a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So as we begin in John chapter 5, we realize that Jesus has once again gone up to Jerusalem or gone to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. Um, John doesn't name which feast this is. He just tells us that he's there for the festival. We we saw that in chapter 2 where Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. And here, in chapter 5, Jesus is once again in Jerusalem for this purpose. And while he's in Jerusalem, we're introduced to this pool called Bethesda. And we're told a little bit about this place, that there are, there's a multitude of disabled people that live at this pool. So apparently, at various times, the waters would be stirred. And when the waters were stirred, the first person into the pool would be healed. Okay? Okay. And so all of these disabled people are living at this pool in hopes of being healed. And we have no idea how often those waters were stirred. We have no idea how many people were healed. But we do know from what John writes that there were a lot of people there. Okay? And he even gives us a little bit of a description of these people in verse 3 there. He, says, he, he puts them in three categories. You have the blind, you have the lame, and you have the paralyzed So that's the setting that Jesus is walking into as we look at this sign tonight. So let's move now to verses 5 through 13 where we get to the actual event where Jesus heals. Verse 5 says, One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to become well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. So as we move into the, to these Jesus coming onto the scene, Jesus meeting this person, there's a few things that stand out to us. This man has been disabled for 38 years. And he's been at this pool waiting for a long time. Now, we don't know the exact number of years that he's been at this pool, but he's been waiting a long time. And it seems that his hope must have been the slimmest of hope because he doesn't have anybody to put him in the water, and he obviously is not very fast at getting into the water. Whatever his physical disability is, he's never the first one into the water. And yet he lives there because... What other hope does he have? So we're introduced to this man who, is, who has got to be just about as desperate as could be. To have lived in this condition for 38 years and to still be alive is amazing. And Jesus picks this man out of the crowd. Jesus takes the initiative. There's, there's a whole bunch of people there. They all have needs. And Jesus chooses this man... As the one that he's going to heal. I find it interesting that I think Jesus often chooses those who are most desperate. Those who are the neediest. Those are the ones he's going to help. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think one, Jesus has great compassion for people in need. Okay, I think that's pretty obvious as we go through the gospels. That Jesus has compassion on people in need. On people in need. But I think the second reason Jesus often picks these kind of people is, is it's, a, it's a chance for him to show that he can meet any need. It shows his greatness. It shows his authority. I mean, if he can help the people with the greatest needs, who can't he help? So I think, I think there's two reasons that Jesus picks out these kinds of people. And this is who he's chosen here in this story. I think, too, we can see that Jesus takes the initiative with this man. I mean, this guy's just laying there, and Jesus walks up to him and begins a conversation with him. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus begins the conversation with a question, which is not at all uncommon in Jesus' conversations. He would often begin with a question. But as we look at the question he asked it seems to be a little bit of an odd question. Let's let's look at that again. He asked him, do you want to become well? Or do you want to be made well? Well, it seems kind of obvious the man wants to be well, right? Isn't that why he's living at this pool? It seems that way. He's living there in hopes that the water gets stirred up and somehow he might be the first one in. So it seems that that would be such an obvious question. Now, I want to make a little caveat here because I'm going to, try to, I'm going to try to answer why did Jesus ask this question, and you may or may not agree with me, but let me just make this caveat that whether I'm right or wrong, okay, Jesus can ask whatever questions he wants, and it's always the right question, okay? I don't have to understand his questions or his statements or his actions. It's Jesus, and whatever he does is right, okay? So I'm not questioning that at all. I want to make sure that is crystal clear. But why ask this question? And one of the commentators I read, um, I think he, he, he get, he's on to something that might be helpful for us. So I'm going to read a quotation by Klink, and I'm going to try to explain it a little bit, and hopefully it makes sense. He says that the key might not be in the word, well, but in a word that has become foundational to the gospel. Become. This word from the prologue onward has been a central term that expresses the creative work of God in the world. Okay, so it's this term, become. It's also translated, be made. It's also translated, came. It's a very general term. It's a broad term, but it seems like John uses it in pretty specific ways in his gospel, especially in the prologue. So... Let's turn back to John chapter 1. I'm going to try to demonstrate this briefly. By the way, this term for came, became, made, created, it can be translated a lot of different ways. It's a word that's used 10 times in the prologue. I'm going to try to demonstrate, or I'm going to try to show you three of them in hopes of showing maybe what Jesus is trying to do here. Okay, so the first one is in chapter 1 verse 3. Okay, And it's in the word where it says that all things were created through him or all things were made through him. That's the word. And it's used three times in this verse to show Jesus' creative power. Jesus created everything. And nothing was made that he didn't create, that he didn't make. Okay? So John uses this word to show the creative power of God. And Jesus has that power. John 1, verse 3. I hope hope you're with me so far. Verse 14, same word, used a little bit differently. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? So Jesus has the power to make all things. Jesus also became flesh. He became human. And then if you look at verse 12... It says that all who receive Jesus, they have the right to become, that's the word become, children of God. So if I could put it this way, the one who created everything there is became flesh so that we might become children of God when we believe in his name. Okay, so let's go back to John chapter 5. In verse 6, and hopefully that explains it a little bit, I think, what Jesus is trying to do with this question. Do you want to be made well? Because Jesus is about to display his awesome creative power, okay? He's going to show it. All right. The man's response in verse 7. The man responds politely. He calls him sir. Sir. He doesn't directly answer the question, which that happens a lot of times when Jesus asks questions. People don't actually answer the question, okay? But he he responds politely and he also acknowledges his desperation or his need of someone to put him in the water. So he wants to be made well, even though he doesn't answer that question. He wants to be made well, but as near as he can tell, his problem is that he doesn't have someone to put him in the water. So if he just had someone to put him in the water, everything would be okay, as far as he's concerned, okay? But he has no idea who Jesus is. He has no idea who this is talking to him, okay? And Jesus is about to show him. So verse 8, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man became well, picked up his mat and started to walk. It was instantaneous, okay? The man just immediately got up, picked up his mat, and started walking. Jesus, the word of God, who created everything, has made this man well by speaking. Okay, he didn't touch him. He didn't do anything. He spoke to him. And the man is made well. That's the creative power of God at work in this healing. The same power he demonstrated when he made all things in chapter 1, verse 3. Now he has made this man well by his word. Well, you would think, all right, there we go. There's our story. We're done. Man in most desperate need. Jesus comes. Jesus addresses him. Jesus heals him. End of story. Everything's good, right? Well, not quite, because the end of verse 9 says, Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk, they asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So instead of everybody being happy happy after this amazing healing, this amazing display of power, this huge controversy starts because Jesus has done something on the Sabbath. It's interesting that they confront this man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. You know, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? And he deflects the attention. He, he deflects it away from himself because he's not doing this on his own. I mean, he's being absolutely accurate. He said, well, the one who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Okay? So he just did what he was told to do by someone who had just healed him. So he's deflecting the attention to the one who told him, and so now their attention is diverted. Now all the Jews are concerned about is, so who told you to pick up your mat? Because the one who is teaching people to do these kinds of things on the Sabbath is far worse than someone who just randomly does this on the Sabbath, okay? This could spread, right? if Jesus is going around telling people to do things on the Sabbath, so their attention immediately goes to the one who told him to do this. But the man doesn't even know who it was that healed him. Okay, He's, he's been here desperate. He's, he's been disabled for 38 years. This man walks up to him and heals him. He doesn't even know who it is. He hasn't even found out yet who this is. And he's apparently just gone on his way walking and carrying his mat, which is what Jesus told him to do. And he doesn't even know who it was that that healed him. Well, Jesus, after healing him, had slipped away into the crowd. And as you can imagine, we already know that there were a lot of people gathered at this pool. There were a lot of people there. And so if if someone like this man was healed, can you imagine the crowd around him? All the people that would gather around him? I mean, who wouldn't want to see that, right? Right? And so there's all these people around him, and Jesus just quietly slips off. Okay, this is, this is something that we're going to see in the Gospels over and over. Jesus will do something incredible, and then he just kind of slips off quietly. He's not, he's not drawing attention to himself. He's already made his statement, as it were, okay? Well, the story continues, verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been, become well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So Jesus finds the man in the temple. Once again, Jesus finds him. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus begins the conversation. We don't know why he's in the temple, but he's gone to the temple. He's able to walk. He's able to carry his mat. And he's found his way to the temple. Jesus finds him there. And Jesus talks to him again. Now, it's interesting, Like it just seems like Jesus comes across with such a stern warning here, right? See that you sin, don't sin anymore, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And there are a lot of questions about what is going on here. But, I think one of the things that seems obvious to me um, is, is we'll start with the what is the something worse. Okay, let's start there. He's warning him to stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to him. Well, I think the something worse is not talking about getting a worse physical disability. Okay, this guy's been disabled for 38 years. He's had significant problems, and I don't think that's what Jesus is warning him about. I think in all likelihood, Jesus is warning him about something worse in the, of, in the form of eternal punishment or judgment. And so the warning is, do not sin anymore. Now look at how he prefaced this statement. He says, see, you have become well. I think that's really the key. If you put this in the context of the man who just healed him, the man who just made him well, Jesus has already demonstrated what he's capable of, okay? So if this guy doesn't understand, well, what do you mean don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to me? At least he should just ask Jesus, right? Okay, because Jesus has already demonstrated his power and authority in the way that he healed this man. In fact, if he would have shown any interest, I'm sure that Jesus would have told him what we find in verse 24. Where Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Okay, if you don't want something worse to happen to you, then you need to hear my words. You need to believe him who sent me and you'll have eternal life. You won't come under judgment. You'll pass from death to life. So Jesus has the words of life. Jesus has the answer. But this man seems totally oblivious to who Jesus is. No interest at all in, in, in preventing this disaster from happening to him. It just seems that he goes merrily on his way and doesn't, doesn't even consider what Jesus is saying. In fact, when he leaves Jesus, where does he go? He goes to the Jews and tells them that it was Jesus who made him well. He tells on Jesus. The man who healed him, he was desperate. Jesus healed him. And he just seems to have no regard for who Jesus is. He he does not seem at all like he is putting any kind of faith in Jesus or believing in Jesus. Now remember, after the first two signs in, in John's gospel... The first sign at Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned the water into wine, the response was the disciples believed. And with the second sign, when Jesus healed the official son, the response was that the man believed in his whole family. They saw the sign and they believed. And here, with the third sign, it's a completely different response. We don't see any believing, we don't see it from the man who was healed. And we don't see it from the Jews either. In fact, what we're going to see is opposition. And so the next section, as as this event ends, where Jesus has healed this man, the next thing that happens is opposition to Jesus. This is verses 16 through 19. Verse 16, remember, in the context that this man just told on Jesus, right? Okay, verse 16, Therefore... The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They're persecuting him. And, and we're going to find out later in verse 18 that they actually even want to kill him because of this violation of the Sabbath. They're, they're, they're so concerned about all of these Sabbath rules being followed precisely. And they haven't even given a single thought to the fact that this man was just healed. All they can think of is this Sabbath violation. So opposition begins. And by the way, this opposition to Jesus that begins here will continue all the way to Jesus' death on the cross. It's just beginning here. It doesn't just die off. No, it begins and it's going to continue until the point of his death on the cross. Verse 17, Jesus responds to the opposition. And again, you know, I like to point out sometimes that Jesus seems to say things that we don't expect. He asks things that we don't expect. He does things that we don't expect. And, and I think we really need to take note of that. Because what would you typically do if somebody accused you of something when you didn't do anything wrong? You would defend yourself, right? You, you would exclaim, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break any of God's rules. The oral tradition does not match up to the measure of authority of God's law. I didn't break God's law. Okay, but that's not at all Jesus' answer. I mean, in theory, he could have gotten away with it because he didn't do anything wrong, right? But look at verse 17. Jesus responded to them. He's answering them. My father is still working, and I am working also. Jesus has gone a completely different direction. He has identified himself With God. First, he addresses God as my Father in a very familiar way. Now, it wouldn't be uncommon for Jews to address God as, you know, our our Father in heaven with some kind of qualifier on there, but not the familiarity that Jesus assumes here when he says, my Father. Okay? That's the start of it. But not only does he say, my Father, But he says, my father is still working, and I am working also. You know, if God's working, I can too. He's identifying with the father. Well, look at verse 18. How do you think they responded to Jesus' statement? This is probably pretty um, easy to predict. Verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was the first violation they were concerned with, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal to God. And this is even far worse. Okay, As far as they are concerned, this is blasphemy. He's made himself equal with God. He must die. That's the way they take this. The concerns over the Sabbath are probably a little bit set aside now. Jesus has made himself equal to God. Verse 19, Jesus responds again to them. Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. Okay, so Jesus begins his response with this familiar phrase in the Gospels, truly, truly, I tell you. Now, this is, a, this is a, something that is unique to Jesus. You don't really find anybody else saying this statement in the scriptures. You don't see the apostles saying this. You don't see really anyone, but Jesus making this statement. And I think really he's just demonstrating that, hey, listen up, because I'm about to say something significant. Okay, truly, truly, I say to you. So what did Jesus say? He said, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Now, I think this is an incredible because Jesus has already asserted that he is equal to God, the father. He's already asserted his equality. He hasn't backed down from that at all. But here he's making another really powerful point. He's not saying, okay, here's God and his authority and his power, his deity, and here's mine, and we're equal but competing deities. Okay, look at how he's closely identifying with the Father. He is dependent on the Father. He is submissive to the Father. He is subordinate to the Father. He is working with the Father. So he says, Hey, I'm not able to do anything on my own, but only what I see the Father doing. Carson says, Though he is the unique Son of God and may truly be called God and take to himself divine titles, and as in this context, divine rights, yet he is always submissive to the Father. Not only does the Son always do what pleases the Father, but he can do only what he sees his father doing. So Jesus has clarified this equality to the father to ensure that they understand, hey, but I'm only doing what the father is showing me. I'm only doing what the father does. Now the next um, several verses, well actually really all the way through the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to he's going to continue to defend his statement that he made originally. And for sake of time tonight, we're only going to look at the first section of that, verses 19 through 24, where Jesus, he explains that he can make this claim of equality to the Father because of his close relationship to the Father. Okay, and he's going to demonstrate that with four explanation clauses, for lack of a better term, four explanation clauses that... All begin with the word for, F-O-R, okay? So let's look at the first one. It's at the end of verse 19. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. So Jesus is going to explain that the reason he can make this claim is his close connection to the father and that he's doing what the father does. Okay? He is not imitating the Father. He is not doing similar things to the Father. What he sees the Father doing, he's doing those very things. So, as far as Jesus is concerned, he believes that the Father, he sees the Father doing things like healing people on the Sabbath. And so he heals on the Sabbath. He does what he sees the Father doing. Okay? Now, as he's making this explanation of this close relationship he has to the Father, he's not at all backing down from the fact that he is equal to the Father. Because if he's doing the things that the Father is doing, he's showing his equality. Okay, So he's not apologizing for his statement that he made earlier. He's defending it, but he's backing it up. And so his first statement is the clause that says that he's doing the things that the Father does. The second explanation clause is in verse 20. It also starts with the word for. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So here's that close relationship between the father and the son. The father loves the son to the point that he shows him everything he's doing. Now who else could make that claim? Who knows everything? Everything. That the Father is doing. I mean, this is an amazing claim. But if if we could turn back to chapter three, I want to show you another statement that John makes, showing the Father's love for the Son. Okay, because the Father's love for the Son is incredible. We we often think so, think of redemption in terms of the love that the Father has for the world. We, right? We get that from John three sixteen, but John actually makes a case in his gospel that that part of God's plan and redemption is a demonstration of his love for the Son. So let's turn back to John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Okay, again, a very, very close connection between the Father and the Son. He loves the Son. He's given all things into his hands, including, I think, verse 36 is one of those things. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Okay? The Father has given the issues of life and death into the Son's hands. Because he loves the Son, he's given these things into the Son's hands. So that those who believe on the Son will have life. And those who reject the Son will face God's wrath. Okay? So God... The father loves the son. We've already seen that in the gospel of John. So let's go back to chapter five and verse 20. This is the kind of love that the father has for the son. A love that is unlike any other, okay? Jesus is defending this close relationship he has to the father. He can claim he's equal to the father because this is how much the father loves him. He has shown him everything he's doing. The third explanation clause that begins again with the word for is in verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. Two things here that I just think are incredibly significant is the father has given the son the ability to give life. I mean, that is huge. You're going to find all throughout your Old Testament the idea that God is the giver of life. Okay, In fact, let's just look at just a couple of those. If you can turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I'm going to read verse 39. It says, See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who brings death. Turn over just a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. Another example would be 2 Kings 5-7, if you want to write that down to look up later. We won't go there because of time's sake. But it is widely accepted by the Jews that God is the giver of life. And yet, now we see here that the Son has the ability to give life. So close is their relationship. They are equal. The Son has the ability to give life. And look at that last little part He has the ability to give life to whom He wants. Even as Jesus is completely submitted to the Father's will, He always does the Father's will. He also has some measure of autonomy and authority to give life to whom he wants. And I think we see that type, of, that type of authority, that type of choosing displayed when he walks into this crowd at the pool and he chooses one that he's going to heal. Because that's the type of thing that he sees the father doing. Okay? So not only is the son able to give life, but he's able to give life to whom he desires. Such is the close relationship between the father and the son. And the fourth explanation clause is in verse 21. Again, beginning with the word for. For just as the father raises, I'm sorry, verse 22. They all start with four, so it's confusing. Verse 22. For the father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Okay, once again, this is very similar to the one where the sun has the ability to give life. The Jews had long accepted that God is the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18, 25. And yet, even though God is the judge of all the earth, he has given judgment to the son. Okay, to, to demonstrate that close relationship they have, that they are equal. Why? Why? has he given all judgment to the Son? The answer is in verse 23. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. God the Father is the one who wants the Son to be honored. And so he's given him this judgment. What what is the ramification with Jesus as the judge? Okay, If Jesus has now been made the judge of everyone... What does that mean for us? We'll look at the end of verse 23. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay? Carson says, The Jews were right in detecting that Jesus was making himself equal with God. But this does not diminish God. Indeed, the glorification of the Son is precisely what glorifies the Father. Did you catch that in this last part of the verse I read? The only way to honor the Father is to also honor the Son. If you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. So there's a very close relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus has made a strong case that he is indeed equal to the Father when he makes this statement. He makes a bold statement and he backs it up with other information here, with these four explanations of how he has this close relationship to the Father. Well, our time is nearly gone, so let's conclude with verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Once again, Jesus begins with that phrase that he's going to use over and over in the Gospels. Truly, truly, I tell you, he's getting ready to say something significant. This is a pretty powerful statement he makes. Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. it's really amazing to me the way Jesus words this here, because all throughout the gospels and all throughout the epistles, we're going to hear over and over and over that you need to believe in Jesus to have eternal life, right? Acts sixteen thirty one: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or John three sixteen: same thing. You have to believe to have eternal life. All throughout the gospels, all throughout the epistles, you need to believe in Jesus to have eternal life. And yet, notice how Jesus slightly changes that up here in verse 24. And again, I think it's in this context that he's demonstrating the close relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, You can't honor the Father without honoring the Son. It's a package deal. You can't separate them in the work that they're doing. Because the work that Jesus is doing is the work that he sees the Father doing. Okay? So, look how Jesus words this in verse 24. If you want to have eternal life, you need to hear Jesus' words or you need to listen to them. Listen to his word, not reject it. Listen to his word. And you need to believe the one who sent Jesus. That's God the Father. Okay? So, it's a slightly different wording that. He uses here to show again that it takes both father and son. You've got to have this worked out right in how you believe about the father and the son. And how they are equal and how they are working together. You've got to have this worked out if you're going to have eternal life. So you need to believe or you need to hear what Jesus says. And you need to believe the one who sent him to have eternal life so that you do not come under judgment but have passed from death to life. As we conclude, you cannot have eternal life apart from Jesus. Jesus and the Father are so unified that it is impossible to believe in one and not believe in the other. Jesus says what the Father says. Jesus does what the Father does. Jesus has authority and power, and yet he operates in submission to the Father's will. Jesus truly is equal to God. They are so closely united that it is impossible to honor the Father without also honoring Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, if you think about what Jesus has just said in the context of who he's talking to, okay, these are people who have closely observed the law, right? Okay, I want to just throw this out there tonight. That it is possible to go to church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night to gather with the body of Christ, to sing the songs of the redeemed, to give to the church, to study and memorize the scriptures and yet fail to believe in Jesus for eternal life. The Jews missed it. This man who was healed, he missed it. How about you? Do you see the Jesus John writes about in his gospel? The one that he is revealing to us as the Messiah, the Son of God. The one who gives eternal life to all who believe in his name. Do you honor the Father by honoring Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. So thankful for the life that we can have in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father except through him. No one has seen God at any time, and yet Jesus tells that if we've seen him, then we've seen the Father. You are the bridge. Jesus is the bridge to connect us to the Father. Jesus offers the words of life. Father, thank you for giving us eyes to see, ears to hear. Father, would you help us to pursue Jesus, to follow him as disciples this week. Help us to honor Jesus this week. Because when we honor Jesus, we honor the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.